Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Grateful to the Islamic Forum, to the organizers, uh, and this Omar and others for their kind, uh, really rolling out of the red carpets. I feel as if I've received a kind of seven-star treatment since my arrival in South Africa, and I feel humbled and somewhat embarrassed. Um, what I want to talk about this evening is a topic that is familiar and radical at the same time. Religion, to the extent that we follow through its premises seriously, is the most radical possible belief system because it professes unity as being the ground of multiplicity, uh, compassion as the fabric from which the world is made, and meaning to morality. That's about as intense as one could get. In our contemporary society, however, we are confronted by a whirlwind, a lot of alternatives, because now there isn't an ideology, a political vision, a spirituality, an economic model that really competes with any of the major world religions, I suppose. There is simply a kind of lassitude that came, first of all, following the collapse of the hypertrophic self-identification with race in the mid-20th century, the political instantiation of the theories of Darwin, and then some generation later, the collapse of uh, communism and the idea of uh, utopia, also rooted in a certain Darwinian view of the nature of man that could eliminate uh, distinctions based on class, wealth, and other divisive categories, those have fallen and we are in a period where they did not fall because something ideologically superior pushed them over, but simply because they collapsed under the weight of their own contradictions or turned out to fail on the field of battle. So we inhabit a strange period in history, it seems, one where there seems to be a globalizing, unifying civilization bravely pointed towards an ever brighter technologized, instrumentalized, prosperous future. But on the other hand, one that rests on a foundation that seems rather hard to define, not least because it seems to be so multiple and conflicted, particularly if you listen to that wing of Western uh, philosophy that is broadly, unhelpfully labeled as postmodernist. The foundation for our modernity, for our civilization, seems not to be a foundation at all. Instead, we proceed whimsically by exploring, cherry-picking fun themes from different narratives, maybe our own, maybe others. The buffet of human civilizations, thanks to scholarship and good librarianship, is ubiquitously available to us. So even if nothing really tastes of anything, there's a huge variety of different dishes from which to choose, and we can be sated. Uh, quantity replaces quality, as is almost the motto of, that defines uh, the modern situation. Our, narrative, our narratives seem to have had all of the juice sucked out of them. The forms of the past we no longer inhabit. We cling to relics. Nationalisms may be raising their ugly head again in Washington or in Moscow or in New Delhi or in many Muslim places, but somehow the narrative to which they hark is no longer really still alive. What kind of conservative really is Mr. Pence or Mr. Bannon? Not really. What kind of Russian really is Mr. Putin? Very arguable. What kind of Hindutva sage really is Mr. Modi? There are a thousand or a thousand pundits who would strongly disagree. Everything has been whirled around in the liquidizer of modernity and turned into something thin, although sometimes still extremely volatile <coughs> and threatening. A funny stage in human history, and one which nobody really expected. The British Empire, which carved this part of Africa into various unwieldy shapes and built a proud and pompous monuments, which may still be seen in the streets of Durban, 
now dead and buried its pomposities, its assurance that it would be a thousand-year empire lie in the dust, along with all other imperial pretensions, not to be replaced with very much except the whirling uh, roulette wheel of the stock exchange and the only true certainty, it seems, despite the current dissident voices being raised across the Atlantic, uh, the manifest decay, even incipient collapse of the ecosystem. Otherwise, what really is there? Perhaps there is the body. No longer are we defined as spiritual beings. The spirit is problematic and perhaps abolished by neuroscience. Neither really is there a kind of positive metaphysics that can arise from the strong foundations of the Western philosophical tradition built up generation by generation, layer upon layer of brick since the achievements of ancient Athens. Instead, that has toppled as well. What we are left with is the body, just the body. If we're mind, body, and spirit, well, spirit, problematic. The mind, can't really agree on anything. No philosophical solutions seem to be on offer. There's just a body, and so our civilization seems to focus its determination to find closure and resolution and certainty and interest just in the body. Hence the trillion dollar cosmetic industry. Hence the monstrous exploitation uh, represented by most of the cosmetic surgery industry. Hence the monstrous exploitation and anxiety produced by the dieting industry, hence the tattoos and the piercings and the various increasingly freakish things that we do to ourselves in order to change that little bit that remains to us of our traditional selves. Gender, an extraordinary obsession. New genders invented every day and vehemently defended in ways that sometimes can look like religious forms of certainty. Those who question the legitimacy of, say, the 52nd gender or the 58th gender are immediately subject to the kind of opprobrium and hatred that used to be reserved for religious heretics. And so the process continues. Very strange. But we're whirling along, and there seem to be few conscientious or at least audible dissidents. An odd period of history, indeed, maybe after the end of history, maybe humanity itself is headed for Roy Kurzweil's singularity, and we'll upload ourselves happily to the internet Thanks to Google, they'll charge us um, without paying taxes. Somehow they'll wangle it. Every one of us will have our consciousness uploaded onto the World Wide Web, and we can continue this conversation forevermore. Maybe so many highly intelligent people are looking forward to that secular uh, eschatology. It's almost a kind of religious idea, the mega upload. Up we go into the cloud. Like dying and going to heaven, except that living it as, as a disembodied point of consciousness, whatever that might exactly be, despite Ibn Sina, but from an Ashley perspective, it will be a very odd kind of uh, existence, although no doubt plenty of um, computer games would be available. But an odd way to spend eternity, really, perhaps not even very charming. Still, this seems to be the sublimation of the religious urge in our funny kind of age, and as religionists coming to religion in various wonky, broken, uncertain, unhappy ways, from a variety of angles and cultures and levels of education, um, we're all a little bit put out by this. Because that which has replaced all of the narratives of the past, all of the civilizations and the certainties and the libraries, is this funny thing run by tax-dodging mega-billionaires uh, which is ultimately somehow about entertainment, about the multiplication of pleasures, about the massive monetization of every conceivable desire, including new desires that we never knew that we had, but they're telling us that we ought to have them, running and running and running, leading to the only certainty, which is that the biosphere can't, count, can't cope, because all of that stuff comes at a price. Strange. Sort of religious the end of the world, but not really with any apparent religious resonance or significance, and we're put out by this. Was this foretold in our scriptures? Does anybody know what's going on? Is anybody in control? Who will come after Mr. Trump? Who will come after Mr. Kurzweil? 
what really is the future of Google and Amazon, those mega corporations, more powerful than any nation state, it seems, to shape our culture and our mind and increasingly to shape the global economy. Where are we going? Helter-skelter humanity. We are in this kind of blender, whirling around, losing ourselves in the process. And a lot of people are making a lot of money, and the money gets concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. But we somehow don't even notice, because the old language of Marxism and justice and dignity and charity and all have all been lost in the midst of this um, well, we're going round and round and round, and isn't it exciting because it's kind of fun to be moving at high speed, isn't it? Um, this is um, what Zygmunt Bauman calls liquid modernity. The old narratives have gone, and instead, where a fascinating and enriching and reassuring and happiness-inducing certainty about one's place in the world used to exist. I know what my gender is, and that tells me my place in the world. I know what my nationality is, I know what my religion is, I know what my neighborhood is. These forms of coordinate which used to give us our sense of meaning and comfort and reassurance and security, all of those have been blasted away in favor of a world that endlessly multiplies possibilities in the name of freedom and opportunity and those modern watchwords. There's so much that we can do, many of them imaginary on the internet more and more of us inhabiting a cyber world of parallel realities that increasingly, with every year that passes, looks more attractive and interesting than the real world. All those Arab teenagers defeating Israel in a run, rerun of the 1967 war, but it's all in the imagination of some corporation. It's somehow nicer to be there than to quaff the bitter dregs of our messy Reality, waking up, is um, an unpleasant kind of experience. So here we are in this old period of history, not really foretold by the West or by the empires or by the philosophies or perhaps even by the religions, trying to make sense of it and figuring out what it could possibly mean still to have uh, an attachment to the only narrative that really makes sense because it has a whole metaphysical and spiritual uh, armature to it, which is a religious narrative. What is it to be part of that immensely solid thing, that religio, that connection, that traditio, that handing down, in a world where everybody's in the blender and looking forward to the next iPhone, and looking forward to the next episode, and looking forward to the next fashion, and looking forward to the next bodily adjustment that they're going to impose upon themselves, and oh, and we're in it as well, the hijab fashions, and the, we're, it's very hard to escape that rotary motion. Uh, so where do we stand, and what should be our justification for the stance that we take? Well, I flagged up this talk as a reference to the idea of slavehood, of Odia, which could be seen as the polar opposite the detested other of the modern project, which is the self, freedom, liberty, equality, fraternity, all of those things that don't make too much sense unless you know what it is that is free, what it is that is it is to be a brother, what it is, uh, the liberation of something that modernity finds it increasingly difficult to define or to identify. Although, according to the head of engineering at Google, Soon we'll be able to scan our consciousness, and make copies of ourselves, and give a copy of my own consciousness as an Eid present to my mother-in-law, for instance, on a USB stick. Here I am. But this is what they are saying now. Very odd. But uh, in the midst of all of this religious coordinates, you could say what defines our otherness and our otheredness in the eyes of the helter-skelter dominant culture is the idea of abd or obodiya. Slaves. Nothing really in the Islamic worldview makes much sense unless you know that, that is a valued concept. And it seems counterintuitive, almost outrageous to the Western mind to say that slavehood could be something estimable. But it's the necessary corollary of the monotheistic premise of la ilaha illallah. 
if he alone truly is, and if existence depends utterly on him as the shadows depend on the light, and if values really don't signify anything unless they are grounded in the divine will and the divine decree. Uh, well, obodia is, is the key category and the key concept. Abd. When you look at the tafsir writers, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Subhana the asra bi abdihi laylan min al masjidil harami ila masjidil aqsa. Glory be to he who brought by night his abd from the holy mosque to the further mosque. The abd, why the abd? Why not Muhammad? Why not Rasulullah? Why not Habibullah? Abd. Tafsir writers say this is because this is the best form of praise. This is the highest encomium. This, the Isra, the Mi'raj, is going to be the glorious confirmation of his entire prophetic career. His demonstrable, personal, bodily sealing of the story of, of prophecy by leading the earlier prophets in prayer. And then his unimaginable leap into the infinite unknown on the Mi'raj and the maqam of Qaba Qawsayn. This is the supreme moment of human history, really. Not just his own specific Muhammadan prophecy. This is the culmination of everything. And the term that is used to refer to him is Abd. Slave. And this comes up again and again in the Quran. The story of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. His mother brings him into Jerusalem, and there is the baby, and the scandal is unmistakable. And what does Zayna Isa say? Inni Abdullah. The first words that he says when he's only a few hours old, probably, a neonatal uh, creature. Inni Abdullah, I am Allah's slave. And this is clearly a refutation and a glorious surpassing of everything that the Nasara have said about him. This idea that they had of the infinite baby in his swaddling clothes in the manger, that whole story still, the omnipotent creator of heavens and earth, that paradox is too outrageous to fit into the human brain, but we have something higher, something better to say of him, which is Abdullah, the slave of Allah. So this obudiya is really another word for Islam, you might say, the surrender to how things are, to be abd. So that makes us radical. Not the fake radicalism of those who think they're being authentic by burning flags and stamping on effigies and protesting about this and that. Sometimes there is a context for that, but that's all part of uh, a, a narrative of protest, a style of disagreement that comes ultimately from the West's monoculture itself. But Abdullah is a, a radical thing to claim to be. It seems to set oneself completely at odds with the guiding logic of modernity and the engine that's swirling us all around. Abdullah, who's going to make money out of that? How do you make money out of somebody being a slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and accepting his iftiqar? His neediness of the Creator, not of the corporations or to, up to the banks, but of the Creator, that is really unacceptable to the dominant paradigm, which is about the accumulation of wealth and the creation of bubbles of credit. Abdullah is a nuisance in that scene. So that makes us all radicals, uh, dissidents, aghiar, outsiders, strangers, and we are told. Islam began as something strange and shall return as something strange. Blessed therefore are the strangers. It's kind of necessarily the case. And sometimes we get exhausted by this. We get a bit tired of being different. I just want to fit in, we say. I just want to be like everybody else. I'm sick of being pointed at and dealt with as some strange principle and Islamophobia and the media uh, gets you down after a while. True, it's hard to carry that. And there are legitimate ways of lessening that burden. You don't have to publicly proclaim your outrageous difference the way some of our brothers think that we have to. The Sharia has instruments for making us less conspicuous and even partly camouflage. But it's inevitable 
in the age where humanity is being atomized, liquidized, and this blender running after the next fashion with no roots in anything, that the Abdullah is going to be weird. We have to uh, acquiesce in this. The other kind of obvious thing to say about this is that where one sees younger people whose culture, whether or not they're quite at ease with admitting it, is a Western culture. They've been processed by the powerful machines of indoctrination. They've been to the schools, they've watched the movies, they've been to the universities, they've passed the exams, they speak the language. Their way of dealing with reality is based on the assumptions of the dominant civilization. When from that position, they then wish to continue their Islam, or they wish to come into Islam. We often say they are following traditional Islam, and externally, indeed, that's what most of them end up doing. They become Shafi'is or Hanafis, and they get Sheikhs, and they share the list, and they say their five daily prayers. They seem to be part of this great caravan, this procession that goes back to Imam Shafi'i, Imam Abu Hassan, Shadali, and to Rasulullah. They're the next step in that line. Traditio, handing on, the hand that takes the hand that takes the hand. Sanad, Ijaza, this is our way. And indeed it is, but externally that's the only way of receiving the religion from living representatives who've met living representatives who've met living representatives of the one who was on the Isra' or Mi'raj sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's what we are. It's a bodily process of transmission. It almost feels like a family business. It's like DNA, it's like genes, except you can acquire it. But at the same time, somebody who has had uh, any kind of traditional set of assumptions and worldview shattered and ripped asunder by the liquidizer of modernity, while taking on the external form of that, we'll find that that form is possessed of a different content. And this is inevitable. Once you've been through the blender, you can't just become a Bangladeshi villager again with the old worldview. You can't go back to that. Once you've been shredded and blended and liquidized, you're something new. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, are our claims for the universality of Islam salihun li Does that incorporate even our shattered, weird, strange, post-gendered, broken, liquidized, hyper-capitalistic modernity? Is there a form of Islam that fits that and heals it and gives us a sense of, of, of place? Do we have to be just strangers, feeling like Gypsies, nomads, outcasts, uh, wandering tinkers in the bazaar of the modern uh, consumer party. Um, maybe to some extent a kind of Darvish personality, the faqir looking on with some kind of amusement from without, having found true nourishment with his lord and his obudiyah. There is a certain way in which we can adopt that traditional Sufi paradigm not of disgust at worldliness and worldlings, but just kind of being a bit amused by it, as though they were like children, easily pleased, easily offended, really keen for sweets and more treats and for praise. That's how the moderns seem to be. And there's a certain way in which paternalistically you find some of the, the senior souls in our tradition looking upon them with a kind of indulgence. They're just children. Forgive them. That's how they are. They know nothing else. And it's kind of funny to see the games they play and to listen to their talk and to watch kids for a long time and it's engaging. So you find very often <coughs> with the remains of our awliya <coughs> classes that their response to those who are caught up in this modern roulette wheel is not disapproval. Disapproval. Haram, haram, haram. But rather a kind of amused compassion. It might be a lesson for us in this. It would be easier to live our lives, after all, if instead of passing everybody in the shopping mall, we said haram, haram, 
haram, haram, and still, at the end of it, trying not to feel superior ourselves, which is spiritual death. Instead of that uh, amazing piece of internal athleticism, instead of that, we said, that's kind of amusing, and that's very charming, and look at that, and look at this person trying on the new dress, and it's all kind of like a party, funny, but not really for us. That's more of the kind of Sufi approach, and I think it's healthier. It'll give us a certain humility and a certain empathy and a certain taste of the virtue of there, but for the grace of God go I. We could be there. Maybe we were there. Maybe next year we'll be there in the sails and we'll have forgotten everything just whirling around in the blender. Um, it's just by Allah's grace that anything at all comes about. And that's part of acknowledging the reality of Obudiya. Laysa lakamina al-amri shape. That it's all in God's hands. And we have to be in the state of abdar, embracing whatever Allah's decree might be. Not just gritting our teeth and putting up with it, but embracing it as an aspect of his perfection, even if it's tough, even if it hurts. Grabbing the rose, even with the thorns, it's all part of the perfection of the rose bush. This is a high degree, but difficult. But a classical virtue that perhaps can offer us some steadiness in uh, a wobbly and uncertain world. Now, these people, us in most cases, who outwardly comply with the narrative, the great stream that comes out of Medina uh, and adopt the outward forms of Islam and are shaped by the Quranic worldview to a greater or lesser extent, but still have come out of that process, we also have another pedigree. And you see this particularly with people from the convert community, but also with people who have been astray from the community and then kind of snap back into it. The, the West and the Western narrative to which we also belong, whether we like it or not, also has a genealogy of discussion about its own modernity, a conversation of which we should be an active part. The Enlightenment produced the romantic reaction. And the romantic reaction, which was not really a Christian reaction, but was certainly interested in the sacred and in beauty and in virtue and in God and in the imagination, was quite interested in Islam, and quite interested in Islam, particularly this spiritual and Sufi dimension. Jeff Einboden's new book on Islam in, the, in German Romanticism is an example of that. Plenty of them, from Goethe's famous poem about the Holy Prophet وسلم, to Schiller, to Franz von Bader, to so many others, to some of the novelists. And then in England, Coleridge and others, Rilke, uh, and also philosophers such as Nietzsche. Nietzsche hardly a romantic, but still part of that reaction against the reaction. Saw in Islam something that could represent some kind of rock sticking up above the surging seas of the relativistic, hubristic modernity, which they, in often very uh, sharp-eyed ways, were considering and looking for European alternatives to. Goethe, with his fascination with Hafiz and Rumi, um, von Bader and his interest in the, uh, the Sufi tradition of the Ishraqis, um, Byron, maybe hugely self-indulgent, not exactly a philosopher or a spiritual person, but somebody who saw something in the world of Islam that he experienced, that maybe, according to some, a Muslim. This way of being European and at the same time gravitating towards Islam as a non-materialistic but non-Christian alternative uh, to the the ever-accelerating uh, blender uh, is something to which we might think of uh, not too whimsically attaching ourselves. What if we are now so westernized that our traditio is not just with Imam Suyuti, Imam Ghazali, Fakhreddin Razi and that great and glorious and shining caravan, that procession, of lights from the earliest times of our history, but also because of where we've been spiritually, the pollutants in the air that we inevitably breathe, 
we have a belongingness to that European tradition. And what if that European tradition also has uh, a department, a possibility, a weakness, uh, a certain inclination towards specifically Islamic movement? And what would that look like? Well, the Romantics, I suppose, petered out in maybe the mid-20th century with a counterculture, Ascona, with the hippies, with the New Age, it became very indulgent and was in many ways killed by the drug phenomenon, which became a kind of pseudo-religion, Timothy Leary and beyond. Uh, but still, a possibility in European civilization, non-materialistic, uh, not really believing in the great story, the monomyth of progress, but really not Christian either. So if you look at Nietzsche who's coming out of Schopenhauer and Schopenhauer really howling with a very systematic rage against the great void that has opened up at the heart of his philosophical tradition and his civilization as a result of the impossibility of the Christian God. And his arguments against religion are very, you know, assume Christianity is the default. And his insistence that the man who wishes to experience something of the richness of this void should be somebody who ethically tries to transcend it, despite the absence of a genealogy of morals, leading on to Nietzsche with a more dark, but much more articulate, and in some ways more spiritually dense uh, reification of what to do after the death of, of the Christian God. Nietzsche with his many positive statements about Islam. Nietzsche with his indication that those two areas on which this German almost nihilistic existentialist tradition had taken Christianity to task. Its hatred of Eros, its hatred of Thanatos, these two Greek principles that are big in Freud and were fundamental to Schopenhauer. The hatred of the, the faculties of human reproduction and of earthly love. So Christianity is denying the miracle of life and it's not fully experiencing life. And also its reluctance to get involved in political processes and in militancy. It's pacifism. Turn the other cheek. Resist not him that is evil. For Schopenhauer made Christianity a moral impossibility. And for Nietzsche made Christianity uh, a moral outrage. A religion of, of softies. Of, of, of untrue men. So he says... If Islam despises Christianity, it's a thousand times right to do so because Islam presupposes men. This is the idea of the superman, virile, full embracing of life. That doesn't take us in a metaphysical direction, but at least it allows us to situate a certain narrative within Islamic, within Western civilization, which can be a beginning point for more soft, humane, perhaps aesthetic forms of romanticism that do fit and dovetail very well with our strongly aestheticizing and imaginative Sufi tradition. It's a possible narrative which we can belong to, and it's important for us if we want to think about where we come from, intellectually, culturally, spiritually, to recognize this as a possible place in which to situate Obudiya in the landscape of uh, the West and its uh, machines. The driving energy of the whole process, Schopenhauer speculated, would be absence. Whereas Europe had historically been driven by the Church, by the Eucharist, by the miracle of God with us, Emmanuel, now that vanished to be replaced by a rather fascinating void, a vacuum. But because what had disappeared was infinite, this void was pretty enormous as well. So for Schopenhauer and much of the Western tradition that comes out of that, that whole energy of philosophical life and ethical life and aesthetics and the genealogy of morals and everything has to be generated by this pseudo-religious but nonetheless very fascinating vertiginous experience of standing on the brink of nothingness. There is this huge infinite crater left by God. He's gone, but this is so fascinating that he's no longer there. But it generates a kind of gravitational force, a vortex, which moves things along. And so much of Western art is generated by that. Western art from that time on becomes 
really quite intensely and self-consciously and often brilliantly secular and anti-religious. Modern art essentially is about the energy that one experiences standing at the edge of a chasm. It's unnerving, but the kind of serotonin gets rushing and it's exciting. It's like base jumping just before you jump, oh, there's the void, and that's kind of exciting. It's dizzy, vertiginous, it's exciting. And this would seem to be the driving energy, the dynamo of our uh, modernity and of our modern culture. The endless fascination of the void, nothingness, the black hole which somehow seems to suck into its nothingness almost everything else, a kind of dark matter, a neutron star, so powerful that it can push ahead a whole materialistic civilization and fill the art galleries, keep the Qataris happy because they keep buying this stuff. And this, this is what is propelling us forward, whereas once it was uh, the Christian God, now it is the neutron star, the fascinating story of there being nothing at all. So here again, where does this leave us with our obodiyya? It leaves, it leaves us in a strong position. Firstly, because we can see that the alternative, which makes so many brave, moral, civilizational claims about itself, is based on an absence, and therefore is unlikely to reach a positive terminus. But also, the fact that our theology is historically not the theology of the infinite baby, the God you can touch, the God you can see, the finite, embracing the infinite, but instead insists on lesikamithi shape. Nothing resembles his likeness. Quran doesn't even say nothing is like him, although that's the usual translation. Literally, it means nothing resembles his likeness. In other words, that's kind of an extra degree of otherness. This is what they call in theology apophaticism, the otherness <coughs> of the divine. And in our theology, we use the tariq, the nefi. How do we know what God is? Through his opposites. How do we know he knows? Because ignorance is impossible for a perfect being. How do we know he sees? Because not seeing is impossible for a perfect being, and so on. That's how we do our theology in the Ilm al-Kalam, the via negativa, tariq al-nafi. So the very otherness of this totality of the infinite is something that puts us in a relatively strong position when compared to those who say, well, God can be here and now, and you can taste him and ingest him and touch him. That uh, uh, misunderstood Teshbid, which was the basis of Schopenhauer, the Western philosophical tradition's rejection of the Christian God and its apparent sentimentality and its insistence on a human distance from our uh, embodied nature and from instinct and from nature itself. We are not subject to that particular criticism. That genealogy which leads up to Nietzsche is not a genealogy of polemic against religion that's going to uh, affect us very much, whether it be in the Sufi tradition or the Ishraqi tradition or the Kalam tradition. We always say, Laysi kamithri shay. Yes, he is al qarib wa nahnu aqrabu ilayhi min habl al warid. Closer to man than his jugular vein, but we know that that closeness is not the a measurable geographical closeness. It can't be measured in imperial or metric. It's not that kind of closeness. It's a closer closeness that is to do with the impossibility of infinity ever being distant from anything. Al-Qarib, indeed. Beneath the surface of every fleeting thing, there is the infinity of the divine mercy and the divine wujud, the divine being. This is what we mean by God's na'iyah. So when we say, we are obed, ibed, abidun, slaves of him. What we are doing is saying we affirm things as they are, as they truly are, not things as they just appear to be to our uh, very limited finite senses. Islam is the submission to things as they truly are. And that's radical. Because for the secular mind, there isn't a truly about anything. 
even though models of matter are very evanescent and things might be a particle one day and a wave the next and they exist and they don't exist at the same time. It's kind of coming to pieces in our hands, but we are different. We do say things have their own fixed reality. So if we come to this concept of obudiya from this uh, radical perspective, uh, what it means is that we are, as it were, grounded. And this groundedness is an embodied groundedness. And this is where the modern obsession with the body finds its healing expression in the Islamic Sharia and in the fiqh. Because unlike in most Christian expressions following Augustine, where the body is really something dark and of the earth and the true saint is never takes up the sword and never marries, that is a kind of almost ghostly apparition. Uh, instead of that Manichaean vision, we have this image of mind, body, spirit aspect of the same thing. Even we have a doctrine of bodily resurrection. And in a contemporary context, that might actually seem very appealing and might make a lot of sense. But the body, not as a kind of protoplasmic thing evolved uh, through random processes of natural selection. However, uh, the human being came into being, the idea of randomness is clearly incompatible with, uh, with Allah being the alim of all things. That this selfhood that we have, that we experience, is what some philosophers call the body subject. In other words, what I perceive in the outside world is inextricably processed by in my embodiedness, is the basis of really all of the Islamic vision. How did the revelation start? With a very bodily experience. I was talking about this earlier today. The angel, Ghattahu, squeezed him. The very beginning of the revelation of the Iqra itself was the angel, the inconceivable Nurani apparition from the world of the Malakut, holding the Holy Prophet and holding him tight, his body, his wujud. It begins with a touch. The revelation begins with a physical process of transmission. And the Sharia itself begins with the body. The moderns who having given up the spirit and the mind in any systematic sense, left just with the body and the body now being deconstructed and relativized uh, in very uh, increasingly strange ways, is healed by this radical reintegration of body, mind and spirit. And this I think, and this is what I detect in many who come to Islam or come back to Islam, is perceived as a healing because our fundamental intuition of human beings is that we are embodied entities. One of the first things we learn about ourselves, a little baby in the pram spends half of its time looking at its fingers and sucking its toes and exploring the strange paradoxical miracle of its nascent consciousness having an embodied matrix. And the Sharia begins everything with that. It begins with purity rules. It begins with wudu. It begins with an engagement with the body, which is profoundly sane, and which also links us, and this is going to be the final of my final one of my, my points, to a traditio which is archaic and primordial. That is to say, it is our conviction that the final revelation encompasses and recapitulates some very, very ancient and primordial themes. <coughs> And it is these themes which were dimly groped for by the Romantics, uh, by the counterculture of the 20th century, which wished to resacralize the body and its functions, and wished to surround itself with something natural and environmentally sound. It didn't really have a language uh, through which that could actually mean anything. So it degenerated into hedonism and raves and the Burning Man Festival, um, just a commemoration of the body's instinctual cravings, which is not its deepest nature. Instead of that, what we have is the recreation in the Sharia, and particularly in these body-oriented sunnah, of something that takes us way back in time to the earliest times, 
the earliest times when human beings had lives where everything in nature seemed to be glowing with meaning and where the body was fully integrated into practices of worship. There is something very archaic about our basic forms, something prehistoric, something fitri. This is why we say the Hanifiyyah, why we say Dino Fitra, the religion of nature or the religion of the natural way. Because in this age, where we are given everything except what is actually natural and nourishing to us, mind, body, and spirit, but everything else we have in a cornucopia of technical superabundance, that most fundamental thing, which is our relationality to this body subject, is granted to us by the Sharia. This fundamental sanity of the niya, whereby bodily functions and ritual lustrations are sacralized through a conscious recognition of the higher purpose of, of, of our bodies, is precisely that reintegration of our blended and atomized selves, which is the healing that the modernity craves. Very often, I suspect, we do come into Islam, come back to Islam, and find this radical doctrine of Ahudiyya slip very, very quickly and easily into these sometimes fairly onerous practices. Uh, some German bloke who takes his shahada, wudu and ghusl, and all of those things are something really new and really strange, but with what instant recognition are these practices adopted? You can almost feel the soul acquiescing and breathing a sigh of relief as one takes on these practices. At last, the body is saying, I am being acknowledged. There is a link between me and the spirit. There is niya, which binds the thought and the spirit and the bodily practice together, a reintegration of our atomized and our shattered souls. It is a healing, which is what the Qur'an calls itself, rahmatun wa shifa. But on top of that, on top of the deep sanity of Islam's insistence that we go back to our deepest, most natural human selves and selfhood, there is the word, there is the iqra, which is still with us. And the uncreatedness of the divine speech is in this, again, ancient, mantic way, this prophetic way, something we still hear. And through these words, we experience something of the Absolute. Talk to people about their private religious lives, if they're in the Muslim community, and you'll be amazed at the number of times they see it was the Qur'an that turned them around, or the Qur'an that came connected to a particular experience that revived their faith, or a particular verse of the Qur'an that shone out and changed them and spoke precisely to that moment. Do you find this again and again, that the Qur'an is a kind of living thing, moves in our hands and continues to speak? It isn't just the passive receptacle of our regard, it is an active principle, an agent principle, a revelation which is ongoing. There can't be many believers who have not had that uncanny experience of the aliveness of Allah's book. That and all of this is what we use in order to provide an appealing alternative to the void, this great dynamo which is driving humanity in unknowable directions. This is the deep sanity of Islam. This is why Islam is this lifeboat. We need to acknowledge all of these things and need to theorize them out. My grumble today, I think, is that Muslims, uh, as it were, enjoy the taste of Islam, feel nourished by it, but they don't really know what the ingredients are or why it works or what is the process of nutrition. And we are required to be a people who yet the people who think, who try to understand. Muslim theology nowadays needs to focus on these issues, recognizing the reality of the westernness of much of our inward lives and our configuration and in that kind of way to try and break uh, open a new frontier for Islamic theology, one that gives uh, articulate and linear and reasoned voice to this inward experience that believers have that this is rahmatun wa shifa. And that, I suspect, is one of the big challenges uh, awaiting the Ummah as we move into the next phase.
about which I'm optimistic, because if it is al-haq ta'ala and a wonderful vision of human integration and a recreation of some of the most fundamental and ancient and archaic human needs and forms of behavior on the one hand, and on the other hand, a technologically induced matrix or vortex of increasing greed and environmental destruction, sooner or later people will see where the two are going and you'll see the migrations increasingly happening in the direction of al-Haq. And we see this with the many good souls that come into the Deen of Islam in Cambridge and around the world. Despite everything, despite the sheer dark energy of the vortex, there are people who escape it and want to be themselves. Cambridge Muslim College, I guess my own tiny institution in Cambridge, exists to some extent uh, to see what happens when we provide a space for people who wish to think in a way that's Islamically faithful, but that recognizes also that the Western way of seeing things, including a scientific way of seeing things, is an inescapable way, inescapable aspect of the way in which we need to do theology and think about life, the universe, and everything in our 21st century. We cannot overpower or outwit or outnarrate modernity by hiding in our Dharam alums and hoping that one day we'll look up and all of that stuff will be gone because it's not going away. Instead, we need to look at it with an unflinching gaze, understand it, recognize the emptiness that is at its core, and without scorn and without derision and without polemic, mercifully, but sometimes in an amused and a witty way, point to what it is and invite humanity to come to the side of uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not just our prophet, but all of the prophets, because ours is the beautiful, uniquely inclusive religion, the religion that encompasses every great sage and prophet since the time of Adam alayhi salam. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open our minds to a true understanding of the reason why we find Islam so nourishing, and so health-giving, and such a radical but reassuring alternative to the vortex, the giddy gyrations of the modern world. May Allah bless you and your community and your country and your environment and your families, inshallah. Open your hearts to the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of his messenger. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.